Welcome to the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Cresty, and today we're joined by Blue Coats Brass Caption Head, Derek Gibson, Baritone Tech, Patrick Garrett, and Melophone Tech, Kristen Eck. How are all of y'all doing today? Good. Great. Very good. Thanks, Bob. Awesome. So, Patrick, can you tell us first a little bit about your experience with the Blue Coats? Sure. I marched Baritone in the Corps from 2006 to 2010. And then I started teaching here at the Corps in 2016. I've been here ever since. Kristen, how about you? I marched from 2004 through 2007. Uh, Mellophone in 2004 and trumpet uh, the rest of the years. And I also started teaching in 2016. Well, we're actually recording this episode for a second time now. And as we're kind of building this podcast and figuring things out. We're learning a lot about sound quality along the way, so hopefully you're noticing a better quality of audio that we're providing to you for this week's episode. So we're trying out some new different things since Derek is off in London, which is where he lives, and Kristen, you're in Ohio, and Patrick's here in Austin, so he's actually just a few feet away from me. Yeah. So today we're going to talk a little bit about what we call BSB at Bluecoats, uh, which stands for Breathe, Sing, Buzz. And at the beginning of pretty much every brass warm-up for us, we start with BSB. So we're going to dig in a little bit to that about different types of exercises that we do within that and sort of why they're important and beneficial to helping create the sound that we have at the Blue Coats. So first thing we're going to do is start with breathing. So Derek, you want to get us going a little bit on just the different types of exercises that you like to do involving the breathing portion of BSB? Sure thing. They really come from two sources. One is a breathing gym book by Pat Sheridan and uh, Sam Palafian that a lot of people use. And the other is more kind of from Donnie Van Dorn, Star of Indiana, traditional air through the horn. The breathing gym stuff, we bring the students into the center of the circle of the arc and do a... um, you know, and it's called breathing gym for a reason. It's a big workout. It's not necessarily a practical application, but it's just to work on taking in more air, having more sustain, having more power, learning how to be a bit more relaxed, more of an open throat. And, and we're also nice and close to the students to give them very direct instruction. The other way is through air through the horn. And those things you can get their feet moving. You can engage the choreography. You can even do stuff on the move. And other things we can focus on as well is what's the quality of air coming out of the horn. We can actually work on matching from player to player, matching tone, matching volume with the air. What types of things do you tell the members about the the sound of the air? Or do, you, or, or do you talk about like, because I hear sometimes they'll say like, you know, warm air, cold air. Do you talk about that? Or do you talk more about the, the audible sound created from the air? Well, one of the things that when you came in, Bob, you said low pitch a whole lot, low pitch. And it, it achieves the type of tone and also the type of throat necessary uh, that we need to get a good sound once they begin playing is, is listening for the actual pitch that's coming out. Is it or is it? We want to go more towards the second one. The other thing, too, it's good is you can really work on timing. You know, timing of the inhale. Uh, we, unless it's fast tempos, we take a one-count breath, as well as timing of the release, and we take a quick inhale for our releases. Uh, you can really get into that and engaging with the feet. 
uh, one thing we talk a lot about is with the feet. And we try to make sure that they're putting the feet with the hands or with the metronome and layering the air on top of that, as opposed to marching with whatever they're doing with their air. Right. So when you're talking about with the feet, you're also meaning, you know, obviously the students then are marking time or doing step outs or anything like that. Yes. Marking time, step outs. It could even be on the move. Uh, And then the other thing cool about doing air through the horns, you can do stuff from the show. And if we have choreography, we always do choreography at that moment, whether it's, you know, kind of a non-traditional part of the show where they're not marching, they're actually you know, doing dance, that's a really good time to also do exercises with the, with the air. Yeah. One of the other things that that I like to do, and and sometimes I would do with my high school students was, you know, picking those, the, the four or five moments of the show where you just have to play really, really, really loud and incorporating that into the beginning of the warm up as well, uh, where we would, we would do those movement or those moments on air and valve. And that would include woodwinds as well, if, if you know, for the high school band folks out there. And we, we wouldn't necessarily use the same kind of air that we use when we actually play because it would be more of a workout. And it would simply be moving as much air as we possibly can through our, our instruments, still forming basically an embouchure. You know, we don't want to puff the cheeks doing anything like that. But I, I think the more that the kids can get used to creating those moments and understanding just a ton of air has to get through the horn. It's just super important. And, you know, as we, as we go through some of the breathing stuff here, just as the very first thing we do, just kind of got to wake up the lungs, get things moving and um, understand it's, it's just sort of like working out. Some parts of it have something to do with actual application of that's the exact same kind of air we would use. And then some parts of it is also just a workout. It's not all exactly the same. Anything, Patrick or Kristen? Yeah, I was going to say, actually, like, it's a really good point that, like, being able to categorize the two different types of breathing, because obviously capacity is kind of what you're talking about as far as, like, just making sure that we're understanding, you know, how to make it a workout, how to get the the lungs moving, how to get the muscles moving so that we can properly support what we want to do in the music, and then being able to draw more exercises that are a little bit more applicable. So going from that workout mode and then making it so that it draws directly to whatever our focus is in the music. So as long as you're, you know, choosing exercises that allow you to, or allow the kids to apply that more clearly, I think that's really the main goal. Yeah. Are there any, any thoughts um, that you have uh, or anything you tell the kids about how they should be feeling when they're moving this much air? For me personally, I'm I'm telling them to relax everything else that isn't actually mechanically allowing the air to come out of the body. Um, it's really easy to tense up other parts of your muscular structure that don't actually facilitate the air um, coming out of the body. So, you know, obviously telling them to relax the throat, the neck, the shoulders, all of those things that really have no function whatsoever um, in, in your breathing capacity. So um, those quick reminders are something we have to do all season long for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the raising of the shoulders. I mean, I think 95% of band directors talk about not initiating with the shoulders, and it's it's and they should be because even at our level, you see kids when they get excited start, you know, moving the shoulders up when they inhale. I'm not a uh, a a breathe from the bottom up kind of guy. I believe all of the the lungs expand evenly and uh, breathing gym talks a lot about also taking up air in the 
upper chest and upper back, which I definitely subscribe to as well. And all of it has to expand. And then on the exhale, it's, you know, it's the abdomen is tense, but the chest and the shoulders is as relaxed as possible. And I, I teach a lot of my lessons too, as well. Like when you're playing, you know, there's really two points that have some tension. And that's around your chops and your tummy as you're exhaling. The throat and the chest and, and the shoulders are relaxed as possible. So what are your thoughts on some of the old school stuff? I know, Derek, like when we marched together back in the 90s and, and maybe your time long before I was ever even a brass player, what are your thoughts on like old school stuff like a breathing block? I'm not really opposed to it. We we don't do it a lot at Blue Coats, but that's just because I haven't thought about it in a while. I, you know, I think it can be good to learning how to uh, control your breath, especially you know, when you're not playing in a show, learning how to kind of meter your breath running around during the drum solo is very important. A lot of kids forget to breathe, especially when they're first learning the show because they're so kind of stressed out and trying to remember all their their steps and things. I'm not a fan of it just for the sake of doing it. You know, it, it would I wouldn't do it a whole lot just to kind of introduce the concept of metered breathing to slow down your heart rate and control your heart rate as best you can. Yeah, I was going to say you can practice metered breathing in, you know, a small group, get the lungs moving setting like we do at the beginning of our day, um, just to get the concept of metered breathing, breathing in general. But then I think instead of a block, because I definitely did that too when I was marching, um, that's fine. But again, the closer we can draw it to their actual environment that they would be doing it so putting them in the drum uh the drum drill and then having them you know go through that whole chunk and see that we can make it like an exercise of breathing metered within that actual setting just the closer we can tie to the actual environment i think the better it is for them they'll remember it better that's for sure absolutely patrick anything we do like we kind of it, like Derek talked about like kind of regulating your heart rate and learning how to um, slow that down in the middle of the drill and everything like that and actually learning how to go about that particular process. But that is also just something that we stress incredibly early on uh, at the like almost in the first week, if not the first day, uh, teaching them that like anytime that you are not playing in the show and your horn is down, you're doing choreography and everything like that and whatever if you can, you know, like you obviously have to count and stuff like that, but inhaling through the nose and out through the mouth and trying to slow that heart rate down as much as possible because ideally you want your students to be able to get to the end of the show and then within like another like 30 seconds to a minute or so be able to kind of play through a fairly simple Bach chorale or something like that and be able to control the air in that particular fashion. Um, otherwise, they're just going to be exhausted and like kind of hyperventilating at the end of the show and it's going to be really a real struggle to kind of finish those like really impactful moments at the end of your program. You know, one thing that we have done, and it's usually kind of mid-season, it's definitely dependent on whether or not we're struggling to control our, our air during a section, is whether it's usually a ballad or like sustains at the end of a production or the end of the show, is uh, have them set up the beginning of the chunk, put their horns down, either do jumping jacks or, or run so like the end zone and back, not super far at all, like, you know, 100 yards at the most. Come back just enough to recreate how winded they are in the show and then do that chunk. We've done that for in subsectionals as well. 
And we had to do that last year for the uh, trumpets at the beginning of the loop section. So that is kind of an old school thing that we definitely do. Well, before we continue our discussion, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor for this episode. Hammond Design is the exclusive mouthpiece manufacturer for the Bluecoats. Carl Hammond is recognized by players all over the world for his commitment to excellence through superior craftsmanship and professionalism. That's why Bluecoats trust Hammond and why we feel you should get the experience of sound in HD. Visit carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com. All right, so let's now talk a little bit about the singing portion of the warm-up process. Derek, you want to get us going on that? Sure. Right after we do some breathing, we usually go into some singing. And the purpose is really the same purpose you would have at any other music instrumental ensemble if they want to do some singing. I think almost every educator, uh, for brass players especially, talks about the importance of being able to sing. If you can sing it, you can play it. You've heard people say, I know that a lot of uh, you know teachers in the past have mentioned that, you know, Arnold Jacobs talked a lot about making sure you have the right example in your ear. A lot of misses, a lot of cracks are just due to the fact that the student can't hear the pitch in their head before they play. So it really is just, that simple you know uh, we do a little bit of kind of warming up the vocal cords very simple scales so like what type of what type of stuff would you sing well just the different um five pure vowels right and uh we put an m in from it me me ma mo mu we'll do different pitches with that like me me ma mo mu me me ma mo mu me me ma mo mu that's just an example we can also just do five note scales up and down and then go up chromatically like you would in a in any like choir. Don't spend more than 30 seconds to a minute on that just to kind of warm things up. And then we'll go into some basic ear training exercises uh, quite often in, in using whatever key and mode is in the show. You know, last year, you know, Eleanor Rigby was in Dorian the within you without you was in mixolydian and so we were exposing the kids very early to those modes uh, and it might be a simple exercise where we're in unison at first and then we split the group up into four going up the scale they're in unison on the way down they might stop on different scale degrees and then resolve back to the original key so just different things that kind of get the ears going and then we as soon as possible, get into singing bits of the show so they can, again, understand exactly where each pitch is. Do you run into any issues or, or in your career, have you run into any issues just getting the brass players to sing out? I know a lot of uh, public school educators, when they start, when they first introduce um, singing to their musicians, whether woodwinds or brass, they're very shy because, well, they're not in choir. Right. Do you run into any of those issues and or what tips would you have uh, to help people out? Not in the blue coats so much. You know, the kids there, a lot of them have, have marched drum corps before where they might do some singing. 
or there are music majors. I mean, we're pretty lucky. We have a really strong level of talent and commitment, etc. I I have two issues of just basic tone production that I noticed very early on. One is this kind of like dark, overly dark sound that someone told them to, to do when they sing like, ho, ho, like it's really covered up. And I just try to get them just to, you know, just be more pure with their odd syllable, like, ha. And one way we do that is we hum first. And just drop the jaw as we go from the M to the ah. One really good one to get them to project in the right way is closing off the soft palate and actually having the air go through the nose for a bit. Like, And we use a H-N-G sound. Hung, hung. And then we drop the back of the tongue. Hung, And I can really get them to push more air. I would suggest that second one for a group that is struggling to get a big sound. A lot of vocalists have done that to kind of help them open up. Yeah. I think also just early on in the process is keeping everything simple, just unison lines, get everybody to, to do the same thing and then helping people find the appropriate octave. Yep. Uh, sometimes the ladies will try to sing too low and sometimes the gentlemen will try to sing way too high. And it's like, no, let's, let's, let's just find, find your comfortable octave uh, to start with just to get them feeling like they can do it. Cause sometimes they feel like I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Yeah. It's also real important that you don't get them to sing out in the wrong way. I, I call it sounding like pirates when they start, really singing from their throat. Ah, and it just, it sounds like, uh, you know, the way they would people sing at, uh, you know, soccer matches over here, just yelling. We don't want that either. It still has to be with quality. That H N G sound does a good job of that. What exactly does that sound like? I'm not going to do it. I've done enough singing already. Put me on the spot. It's like, you know, nine 30 over here. It's late. It's too late to sing with quality. So speaking a little bit of singing and the blue coats, uh, the boxer is one of the most well-known moments in blue coats history. Is that something uh, that you still like to sing? Yes. Well, we have to sound good on it, you know, and uh, very soon in this process, we do rehearse singing the boxer. So we sound great when we play it for encores. Patrick helps us out a lot with that as well. Patrick, you have some thoughts on the boxer? Yeah, it's, Leaven and Fita. There's no G and no E-R. For example. No. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He, he's very quick to remind us all whenever we're not doing it right. And the thing about it is the more I do it every year, I do hear more of those Gs. I'm like, and they're starting to aggravate me about as much as they aggravate Patrick. <laughs> Kristen, any thoughts on the singing stuff? Yeah, I mean, maybe not at the Blue Coats, but you mentioned, you know, what are some tactics to help you know, kids that may not be super comfortable with singing, like introducing early on kind of vocal discovery things like, you know, voice sirens and things like that, that also helps people find octaves that they're super comfortable with. And things that I've done before uh, as a high school director, I had, I had kids sing like popular songs that I knew they all knew <laughs> just to get them comfortable uh, with singing in our setting. Cause I know most kids will probably sing in their car or whatever. Um, but it, can feel a little bit awkward when they're asked to do it all together for the first time. So trying to find something that they may be comfortable with and that way we can tie it then into a little bit more pedagogical vocal stuff. So 
All right. Well, let's get into the, the last part of BSB, which is buzzing. Who wants to take this first as far as talking about just why buzzing is important as a brass player, even though it seems like an obvious answer, but I think we find buzzing to be an important aspect of the warm-up because it can really be a diagnostic tool across the board for what a student's amateur setup might be or just kind of how they are producing their exact tone just by the color of what that pitch actually may be or the distribution between the buzz versus the air, which like me personally, I kind of aim to around a 50%, like roughly in that area of two buzz versus air. You know, it doesn't have to be exactly that, but if you hear a student that has too much of a buzz in their sound, like it's very tight, very brassy sound, chances are when they go to the instrument, it's going to be just as much, like just a tight sound. And generally that is the common mistake that young musicians make is they overcompensate for the lack of resistance on the mouthpiece. And so then they alter things too much and then, then it goes back to the instrument and you have to work on relaxing exactly what that is. So, but conversely, you don't want it to be a super airy sound as far as that goes, because then when you go back to the instrument, it's going to be a flat, unfocused pitch. Oftentimes, at least in the low brass world, you can kind of hear this a lot with people using the suggestion, drop the jaw. And while it does happen, it can also create more issues than actually intended, which is a tr traditional thing that people kind of say. But you have to remember that the lips still have to come there come together to create a buzz as far as that goes. And so if you have an even distribution between those two things, chances are when you go to the instrument, the tone quality is going to be very, fairly characteristic to the instrument, which is the goal for, I would think, all ensembles. Can you talk a little bit about how we ask the uh, students or members to hold their mouthpiece? Is there a specific way they should hold it? They usually do um, two fingers of the thumb. might be at the base of the cup, just so you aren't tempted to create unnatural pressure on the amateur, which is another thing that most young students mistakenly do is they press too much into their top lip, which I actually get this from the trumpet teacher at Illinois State at the time, uh, Dr. Amy Gilreath, and that was like the top lip is your tone lip and the bottom lip is your power lip. And so the pressure really needs to lie on that bottom lip because you can press into that and actually still get a buzz. But the second you press into your top lip, like free buzzing, it's going to kill the sound immediately. So just learning the differences between where pressure actually needs to lie for endurance purposes and overall like quality of sound purposes. Yeah, I was going to say too, uh, as far as holding the mouthpiece, the two fingers and a thumb is great. But I also say put it in the left hand because uh, that way you can position along um, with valves. If we're trying to tie something to our music, it makes it a lot easier for them to apply um, more closely to what it is that they're playing. So. Yeah, and, and sometimes, like, if, when you first said left, I was like, I was going to say something else, but the fact because you tied it into the valves I think is cool. And sometimes if you're not doing anything with valves, they'll just say with the non-dominant hand. And so it's a right. mix of rights and left for everyone, but usually because the, the student is just simply not as strong with that opposite hand. Sure. So, Derek, can you talk a little bit about the types of exercises we would do on the mouthpiece? I'm a big fan of sirens where you could pick a, a really ending inter interval but fifths are good octaves are good you can even do, even do two octaves sometimes it doesn't even have to be a designated pitch if you're really trying to just introduce or reinforce the concept of you get a good sound at the bottom of the siren up to the top and all a siren is is just a constant steady pitch from the bottom up to the top oh, with no break, just like you would do when you're singing. 
which is tough to do. Every player has a break or two in their buzz. Um, and for trumpet, it's a big one. It's between their G, middle G, and low C. There's Most folks have a break there. When you learn how to use the air to make the lips consistently buzz across that break, really helps the overall tone and flexibility throughout the instrument. The other thing that we do is very similar to what we do with singing, which is simple pitch matching type exercises, uh, doing simple melodies, or maybe we might buzz the chorale or a chord. And it's the same concept of singing, kind of getting the right sound in your ear because you don't have valves to help you get to the right note. You have to use your ear. So would you use uh, something like a drone, whether it's from like an app or anything like that? Yeah, we would use usually just from the Dr. Beat. Uh, we'd use a drone to kind of help us stay on pitch most of the time, sometimes not to kind of test and see how well they can maintain pitch. And again, this is another opportunity to use things from the show as well. I've even on the mouthpiece worked on style and articulation. And I know there there's one other buzzing-like exercise that we do called foghorn. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Derek? Sure. It's when we pull the tuning slide out and put one end back into the lead pipe. Uh, some people like to just buzz only the lead pipe. I believe our baritone and euphoniums actually do that. They take the tuning slide completely out. Yep. Yep. Patrick says yes to that. Uh, and for this, there is going to be, especially much more for high brass and the low brass, there is going to be actual partials that come about when you do foghorn, where it is a certain center of pitch that comes out for trumpets and actually mellophones as well. It's a concert B flat in the middle, and it's somewhere around a low concert F for the bottom. It's, the bottom is, is very wide, that partial, and you actually have ones above that. What this does, and a lot of it depends on how, you know, the horn line has been sounding over the past couple of days. And sometimes we just alternate just to keep alternating. But if the horn line sounds tight or, you know, they're not kind of getting a, a resonant sound enough, or it feel like they're really working hard to play with a big sound, the foghorn can really help with this. Because you're trying to make an instrument that's, short that's not really a great instrument anymore sound resonant and, and i tell kids to try to make the horn resonate in their hands and uh, match each other's energy with the falk horn and get as resonant as possible and with high school level or beginner level students i've done this as well in private lessons and it opens up the sound right away it just feels easier to get a sound at mezzo forte or forte with less effort it's, it's a way to get kind of more efficiency in their sound is, is what I use foghorn for. Yeah. And one of the things that I really like about it is how, because the instrument ends up being longer than just the mouthpiece, but it's not the full length of the instrument. It creates that extra resistance to make creating a vibration a little bit easier uh, is one of the things I like about that because it's real easy to, to make your lips vibrate. And often you do that through tension. But one of the things I talk with the students a lot about is the difference between making your lips vibrate and letting your lips vibrate. And I think when you just simply put them in the right place and move a lot of air, that added resistance from foghorn helps create 
the lip vibration a little bit easier, more naturally. It's a lot more of a free vibration rather than anything that, that's forced. Yeah, I really like to use it in particular to kind of assess, similar to like the mouthpiece buzzing, is the color of what that sound actually may be. And also, you can kind of check just what their type of airstream they might be using and what that oral cavity is through that particular process. Like Derek was talking about, high brass has more of an ability to naturally move from, you know, high, mid to low as far as pitch. Low brass, the instrument, or the mouthpiece, excuse me, is um, the size kind of dictates a little bit otherwise because then you're over manipulating what your lips are doing, at least in my opinion. And so we usually kind of aim for a lower sound around a low B flat, somewhere around there. And you can really hear, like if there's any shake in the sound, well, yeah, that means that they're not uh, keeping their air steady and uh, keeping that wheel spinning the entire time and adding any life to what that is. And another aspect that you can kind of use is to use a ha articulation style or an air start, if you will. And that, to Bob's point, you know, it allows you to create a more natural armature setup and you have to aim for a more immediate sound and really you're allowing the resistance of the mouthpiece to kind of dictate that for you instead of trying to artificially manipulate your lips in some sort of way. So now that we've talked about all three parts of BSB, how much time should this take in a regular rehearsal? You know, early on spring training, no more than 30 minutes. By the time we get on to the road where we have much shorter days, no more than 15 minutes. Cool. Just sort of broken down five, five, five. Exactly. Yep. Well, is there anything else that any of you would like to add or thoughts on BSB? Uh, I was going to say something really quick. The whole progression of this breathe to sing to buzz is meant to be kind of building blocks on top of each other. So it's not just random. Uh, we'll, we'll do this breathing thing and then whatever, we'll sing this just for fun. You know, it's all meant to uh, lead to whatever our focus is for that rehearsal in that particular day. So we help give them reminders throughout that process, like, okay, that breathing that you just did is going to apply now to the singing that you're doing here. And then the singing you did here is going to apply exactly to this little buzz section that we're working on. And that's something that we can draw back in later on in the rehearsal as well. So all of these concepts don't have to stay within this, you know, 15 minute or whatever period of time at the very beginning of rehearsal, we can revert back to it if we need to. Uh, later on to save chops or whatever, like do a little singing rep or whatever to tie back to what we worked on in the breezing bugs portion right at the very beginning. Kind of helps solidify for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, you'll find uh, with ever, with any group, including us with the Blue Coats, do great breathing, especially for tight together and the breathing gym sort of stuff when they're taking in loads of air. And by the time you get to the buzzing, they're back to taking shallow, short breaths. And you have to, even our level, so, you know, any band directors listen to this, continue to emphasize what you just worked on with the breathing throughout the rest of the day, you know, especially with singing and, and buzzing, but much less that throughout everything you do. You know, one other thing, too, we didn't mention, between the inhale and the exhale, there is no space. There's no point where the motion stops. Right. And that's really part of the foundation of what we teach yeah, that's what some people would call capping the breath. Yep. Breathe in and then right back out, just like you're swinging a bat or a golf club, and just as natural as possible. Well, thanks to all of you for taking the time today to explain a little more about this part of the Blue Coats Brass Technique program. And that will wrap it up for this episode. We'll continue to discuss our thoughts on brass pedagogy and the exercises we use with the Blue Coats Brass in future episodes 
So be sure and check back every other Monday for a new episode, or you can just subscribe to the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Blue Coats Brass Podcast. Please tell your friends about our podcast and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. If you have any topics you'd like to suggest or questions for us to answer in future episodes, please email us at brasspodcast at bluecoats.com. You can catch us on Instagram at bluecoats or at bluebrass, spelled B-L-O-O brass. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle bluecoats. To learn more about the Bluecoats organization and all of its offerings, visit us on the web at bluecoats.com. Our podcast is made possible in part from the support of Hammond Design, the official mouthpiece designer and manufacturer of the Bluecoats Drum and Bugle Corps. As a performance partner of the Bluecoats, we trust HD with our sound, and we think you should too. Learn more at carlhammonddesign.com to get started. That's Carl with a K, hammonddesign.com. <laughs>